What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. And on this special episode, L is for Lazenby, George Lazenby, the second actor to play 007 on the big screen. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we take a look at the life and career of the star of 1969's Honor Majesty's Secret Service, it's the other fella. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Ah, very nice. Hello. Um, Tom Wheatley won't be joining us this week as he's off somewhere having his earlobes removed or something. So it'll just be me and Brendan this week and this episode is focused entirely on Mr. George Lazenby, the Aussie Bond, the one-shot Bond, the male model Bond, the one who threw it all away in the name of peace and love Bond. So we do have an entire episode devoted to Honor Majesty's Secret Service coming up on the ATZ podcast soon. Uh, but this will be mainly focused on Lazenby himself uh, and his life and career before and after Bond. So first things first, Brendan, what are your yeah. thoughts on Honor Majesty's Secret Service uh, as a film? I think the film is excellent. It's it's up there in my one of my favourites. And that's that's a more recent thing as well, I think. A lot, like a lot of people, have come to appreciate it, as I, I imagine you you have as well. Yes, definitely. It was one that um, I came to late as a Bond fan. I think mm. um, when I say late, I mean I probably when I was about twelve rather than when I was about eight. Um, yeah. <laughs> having seen you know, Thunderball and You Only Live Twice about a hundred times, it was one that sort of appeared on ITV one one day, and I found very confusing <laughs> as to where this film had come from. <laughs> But I'm a big fan. I've seen it on the big screen. I saw it um, when it was 50th anniversary at the BFI. Uh, in fact, me and Wheatley went to see it. We saw Mr. Lazenby himself doing a on on stage Q and A, and it was it was great. It was terrific. It's, it's almost like almost a bit of a cliche to say, you know, it's like you know one of the fans' favourites, and it's underrated, and underappreciated. I think mm. everyone knows now. <laughs> I yeah. think to say it's underrated or underappreciated now is just it's too obvious it's beloved by the fans it's been recognized as one of the best bond films you know and even eon now references it in a way that they sort of distance themselves from it for a while but and all the newer films are heavily referencing it as well yeah i mean obviously you need to look as far as no time to die to see a film Mm -hmm. that was you know wore its heart on its sleeve um when it came to references to on a Majesty's Secret Service. But Lazenby himself, he's 
he's a bit of an enigma, the one-time Bond. So how did he get into this position? Uh, why did he only ever make one? These are questions that we will address on this episode. So uh, without further ado, let's kick things off with taking a look at his early life. So let's take you right back to 1939, September, Australia. So George Robert Lazenby was born in Goulburn. Now, I assume that's the right pronunciation, but I'm sure we'll have people emailing if it's not. Yeah, that's in New South Wales. So when he was very young, actually, he spent 18 months so in hospital. He had, he had an operation because his kidneys failed. They were basically rotting from very, very young age. And that left him with only half a kidney. And he said, I was very confident because I didn't believe anything anyone told me. I had 18 months in hospital when I was one and a half to three. I had 68 surgeries on my bladder. Then a doctor came over from England and said, we had the same problem with a kid. He was peeing backwards into his kidneys. And they looked at my kidneys and one and a half were rotted. So I took out one and a half of my kidneys and the doctor told my mother to take me home to die. What what news for for his mum to receive at that point? But he defied everything, you know. He it, it, he used it as a catalyst to drive forward, and and he said that he he thought, oh shit, I'm not going to die because he got this whole thing at school where people would be, this is the kid that's going to die, and so he used that to fuel everything he did. So he got into sports, he drank alcohol. Basically, everything they told him not to do, he did. <laughs> um, and amazingly, he you know he, he pulled through. And so when he was in his teens, he moved to Canberra. Um, not sure about the geography of Australia. Do you know where Canberra is? No. <laughs> no. I know it's on that side because <laughs> there's only Perth on the other side. And so he, he persevered and he became a leader of a rock and roll band and he books acts coming in from Sydney. And he actually connects that to his uh, performance as 007 he said I was basically doing it just to get out there I didn't know I wanted to be an entertainer at the time but what was in the back of mind I guess was to show off to be somebody and that's why I think when Bond came up the odds were where I would get it because I wanted it more than anybody else but we get on to that that's his early life yes the thing with with Lazenby is 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 he's quite prolific in terms of interviews like there are a lot of interviews out there with him mm. you can listen to podcasts you can see videos of him talking and he does spend a lot of time retelling the same stories yep. so a lot of this may may be well-trodden stuff but one area of his life that i've struggled to find a lot of information out about is when he was in the australian army so this seems to have happened before he had a job the famous job, which which would lead him to moving to the UK, which was as a, in a, in car sales, but according to some reports, he worked worked. He was enlisted in the Australian Army, and he rose to the rank of sergeant, and he gained uh, skills in unarmed combat while there, so hand to hand combat. Like I said, it's not there's not really much I can tell you about it where he served or, or what he did, other than other than that. In fact, I think he might have only been in the armed forces for about four months. And it was when he was in Canberra, um, as mentioned, which I think is just down. It's in the same side of Australia as Sydney, Brendan. So um, apologies to all our Australian listeners. <laughs> but yeah, he, he then took on, you know, a few different odd jobs. And one of them was a ski instructor, apparently. And then he became an agent for the Morris Motor Company. I think, he's, I think it was his uncle that got him a job as a mechanic. So he knew how all the cars worked. He could fix them all. But he then was offered the chance to become a car salesman. And I think he became the head of the head of sales for this garage. He tells a story about being made the head of sales and all the other car dealers quitting on that day because they felt he was unqualified to do it. A lot of these stories that he tells, it's hard to know how much of it is true. Yeah. Um, he likes to spin a tale. But that is, yeah, he definitely worked in cars while he was uh, in, in Canberra. Um, and that became sort of a cornerstone of his career at that point. Yeah. And, and so after that, he he went, he moved to London initially to follow a girl. But then when he got to London, she'd moved on. However, he picked up where he left off in terms of car sales. And he got a job in Park Lane selling Mercedes. 
So obviously you get a lot of well-to-do people buying cars in Park Lane. And he gained the attention of a photographer called Chad Jenkins. And this led to him becoming actually one of the highest paid male models in Europe. And not not long after that, he was earning £25,000 a year, which in today's is about half a million a year. It was a pretty quick rise to the top of the ranks of modelling. He was the European Marlborough man. So he, you know, the the classic American one with the moving signs on massive billboards. He was the European equivalent. He also was in, uh, he advertised for BP, um, Slumberland. And also he was in in a lot of commercials for Fry Chocolates, which I think is now part of Cadbury, isn't it? And he was known as the Mr. Big Fry man. <laughs> um, I've seen those commercials, they're quite good. Yeah. So he'd carved out pretty pretty quickly as well. I mean it's all down to his confidence that, that oozes through, doesn't it? Like every everything he touches does seem to lead somewhere. Yeah. It's worth mentioning at this point that there is a documentary about uh his life called Becoming Bond, which was released a few years ago, which he tells the story himself. In, on to camera interviews so a lot of uh, this information you you can also find in there and i think he talks about when when he was offered the job to model he was said he, he uh, the photographer said something like we're looking for models can you come in for a photo shoot and he sent his girlfriend along because he thought it wasn't a job for men but he said at the time they were looking for more rugged men to be models rather than um I don't know, traditionally pretty men. So uh, that's mm. how he ended up being a model. But you can look at the time. I mean, he did look really good. There is reports that he, at this time he shot a part for a film. This is in 1965 uh, in, in a spy spoof, a 1965 spy spoof called The Espionage in Tangiers. But there's no evidence of this. I don't know where this information came from. Lazenby himself says that he'd never been in front of a movie camera before being in On a Majesty's Secret Service and there's no mm. evidence in the film of him being in it. So whether he was cut or whether this information just doesn't exist, I don't know. If we were to speak to Lazenby, that's definitely something I would ask him about, but he denies being in it. So, um, yeah, obviously 65, that's the height of spy mania, which we've talked about at length before. But yeah, so that was his first brush with acting that might not have even happened yeah, it's weird that he's not mentioned it. No, you, you do you do question like if it happened, if he even he hasn't mentioned it, or maybe it adds more romance to the uh, the Bond story if he didn't, you know, he hadn't done anything before. He was doing so well in his modelling career that he had a meeting with a casting director called Maggie Abbott, and he actually inspired him to audition for Bond. And so he and this this is a story that he has told many 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 times where he focused on turning himself into the perfect candidate for the job of Bond. He bought a suit that had actually been made for Sean Connery for only, uh, for You Only Live Twice, but it, w- it was unused. And he says in one of the interviews that his measurements were almost the same, apart from the length of arms, but he just pulled, he pulled it down a bit and it made <laughs> it look like it fit. He also then, he went to Sean Connery's barber at the Dorchester Hotel and he just said, I want Sean Connery's hairstyle. And little did he know that behind him was Cubby Broccoli. And so Cubby Broccoli had noticed this as well and had seen him, that he was looking the part. And this this led him to a meeting with Harry Saltzman because they'd all started talking about him, this this guy, and they'd seen him and they wanted to get him in and have a have a look at him. And after that meeting, Lazenby actually... He did. He fessed up to Peter Hunt, and he told him that he's got no acting experience. Um, so again, weird that if he had if he had shot anything in espionage in Tangiers, because he's he's just told Peter Hunt that he's not no experience. But Peter Hunt said that if we stick together, I can turn you into the new Bond. So he was pretty confident that he could mould Lazenby all down to his sort of physicality and the energy that he was using and that confidence. Cubby Broccoli said, Lazenby, in my judgment, made a good James Bond. He could have easily fallen into the trap of doing a smart but fatal imitation of Sean. Instead, he fought his corner as a fledgling actor, avoiding tricks, and gave a surprisingly effective performance. Again, that's sort of moving forward to what we're going to talk about. But, yeah, I mean, it's 
it's amazing that he managed to get it. Uh, it's a story that I always find surprising, considering Peter Hunt says that they saw so many actors because this was huge. You know, yeah. Bond at this point was absolutely massive. As you know, we've done the Connery episode, so we know how big Connery had made this role. The fact they get an unknown in is mm. crazy. Yeah. Well, one of the stories that he tells about getting Bond is um, that he um, went to the auditions but couldn't get past the secretary because he wasn't a member of Equity or the Actors Guild. Yeah. And this is when he went away, got the haircut, got the suit, and I think he maybe even got a Rolex as well. Yes, he did get a Rolex, yeah. Yeah, yeah and then went back... Again, they said no, but he managed to bluff his way past the secretary and got up to the office where Harry was on the phone, I think possibly with the casting director, and leant against the door and sort of almost fell into the room. And when he went in, Harry was on the phone. As a lot of the stories are, Harry's on the phone. Um, but he was indicating with his with his feet up on the desk, indicating to the chair in front of him, sit down here while I'm finishing up my phone call. Lazenby, uh, being very bold, decided not to do that and went and stood by the window, told his life story to the casting director. And then the casting director, when Harry then finished, he then said to the Lazenby, tell us your life story. And he said, I've just told it to him. Why don't you ask him? And he said that he, look, Harry Saltzman at that point was like, "We, I think we found someone who could be the the next Bond. Um because he was very bold. And what this got me thinking about was um, when we talked about Connery and how he auditioned for the role. Mm. He didn't do a screen test. He refused to do a screen test. He came to that meeting with Harry and Cubby dressed like in like scruffy clothes. He really fought for his case. So he didn't want to screen. He wasn't going to screen test. He laid out all the terms that he wanted. So when you think about what happened when they found Connery, I think almost accidentally Lazenby almost recreated that situation completely by chance. Mm. He delivered himself as a tall, athletic, good-looking man with bags and bags of confidence. Yeah. And almost Harry and Cubby, you know, they felt they turned Sean Connery from a nobody into, you know, a multi like a, a superstar and he was a man in cut from the same cloth literally cut from the same cloth wearing his suit <laughs> who yeah. presented himself in this way and so they took a took a gamble on it which is yeah it's kind of crazy but when you look at it from that point of view from harry and cubby's point of view actually it's not that it's not that out out, out of the ordinary for them to have taken this big chance on this guy yes connery had done lots of movies beforehand but yeah, I don't know. It was that confidence, I think, that really got him through the door and, and landed in the role more than anything, um, mm. I think. Yeah, um, and, and there's also some stories that it was a punch in an audition that got him the, the role, wasn't wasn't it? That's right. They were doing audition, uh, yeah, uh, rehearsals with a, with a stunt man or a wrestler or something and, yeah. and Laserbeard clocked him. Yeah. And then Harry put him up against the wall and said, we're going to go with you yeah. or something like that. And yeah... I guess like the whole thing about Peter Hunt as well is that Peter Hunt had also f- found his way, climbed his way up the ladder to get to this point. And perhaps he felt he had a better chance with a Bond who was less experienced that he could mould into his mm-hmm. own The Terrence Young image. style. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, when you listen to the audio commentary for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Peter Hunt talks very much about, you know, I dressed him like me. Mm-hmm. So you can almost see that 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 like the allure of having an unknown, an empty vessel uh, to play Bond is kind of an ideal scenario at this point. Yeah. And in fact, it's something that we see down the line, right? When you get Daniel Craig in, he's like the unknown guy that they can shape to be Bond. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it all kind of makes sense, so, sort of. But it is an incredible story. Mm. Um amazing story and we will talk about a bit more about who was up for bond at this point as well when we get to our honor majesty secret service episode but let's talk a little bit about honor majesty secret service um because obviously it's the biggest role that in laser career so talking about it later on 
um, Lazenby said, my experience was mostly pleasant, but there were some bad times too, because I'd never done a movie before and this was a nine month shoot. So it was pretty intense since I was doing my own stunts and I was the centre of attention for nine months. Now, this is something he talks about a lot, doing all of his own stunts. But if you look at the credits, he's got four stunt doubles. So listed. So I don't know how... There's a lot of bravado talking there. He's never done a film before. So how much he knows about like what the stunts he's doing and someone else is doing, you know, I would question. But although Peter Hunt was in his corner, Lazenby said that he fell out with Peter Hunt quite early in the shoot. He said, I spoke to him at the very beginning. Then we had a falling out. I can't remember over what. But there is a story. And actually, what's interesting about this is there's this discussion about Lazenby and Peter Hunt falling out. But again, if you listen to the Honor Majesty Secret Service DVD commentary, Peter Hunt has nothing but nice words to say about mm. Lazenby. Yeah. So it's very hard to know what the truth is. But there's a story about when a crew member asked George Lazenby to help clear the set with a loudspeaker. And he gave him the loudspeaker and Lazenby said, can you clear the set now? We're going to start shooting, blah, blah, blah. But the people who were on the set were actually Peter, all of Peter Hunt's friends who were there to see him work in. And they'd basically just been shooed out of the studio. And so Peter Hunt then basically said to him, don't forget who got you this job. Never speak to me again. Just speak to the first assistant. So there was obviously some animosity around this incident. And apparently when Peter Hunt saw Lazenby at his own birthday party, he left the party. <laughs> he left his own birthday party because Lazenby turned up. Um, so Peter Hunt, like I said, he denies all this now. Um, well, he did obviously sadly pa- passed away now. But um, um, he says that, you know, they were talking throughout the shoot. So it's very hard to know what the truth is mm-hmm. here. Um, but... Um, there is a story as well that when they were filming in Switzerland, which they filmed a large part of the film in, which is quite a remote location, um, Lazenby would often ha- would use the helicopters, um, crew helicopters to fly to Geneva to meet girls, which, you know, isn't the best use of company time or property, I imagine. And there's also reports of him buying guns and firing them while on set, oh, um, which, you know... Again, it's not very professional. Um, And talking about this, he said, when I was in Switzerland, I wasn't happy there. I was working two units and I was in the same place all the time. I was stuck on that bloody mountain day and night for six months. Um, Piz Gloria at the time had no, you know, there was no access to it. They had to fly in and out by helicopter, as far as I understand. But he said the stresses were there. You know, you give me more than three lines and I would have to concentrate on what I was doing. I can't relax and act. Then alongside that, he's got Diana Rigg who, by all accounts, they had a bit of a flirt, possibly a bit of a romantic liaison before the filming began. But uh, while they were filming, she caught him in in a production secretary, with a production secretary in a tent. So that caused some bad blood between him and her. Um, And Lazenby later said about Diana Rigg, you can't talk down to her or talk at her. You've got to talk up to her. And this is the same with Telly Savalas and everybody else. Everyone badmouthed everyone else. Peter was bad-mouthing the producers. The producers were bad-mouthing the director. But someone he did get on with was Harry Saltzman. He said, I found on the whole picture, the only one you could get any honesty out of at all was from the guy who was supposed to be the most evil of all, Harry Saltzman. Harry Saltzman is is the straightest shooter of them all. And because of being a straight shooter, he's the most disliked. He's got no diplomacy. He doesn't come in and say, wait a minute, excuse me, can I just talk to you? He comes in and says, this is what we're going to do. And it doesn't go down well with these people because they're all so egotistical. I thought I was the only one with an ego. I was the guy who was supposed to have the big ego. That's interesting because it, it, it really is everything we've heard about Saltzman is he's the, like, like Lazenby says there, he's the guy that rubs everyone up the wrong way. He's the guy that's been kicked off of many sets, you know, despite being the producer. They've said, no, I, I won't work with him on set. And yet here we are with Lazenby, another abrasive character and, and they're, they're getting on yeah so. yeah harry remember from goldfinger is the man that came in on the first day of shooting and smashed a champagne bottle over <laughs> <Yeah>. the camera <laughs> yeah um well look i mean don't want to talk about it. we wouldn't have james bond films without harry saltzman but um no. yeah no. he's the one that you know caused the rift in the end and had to sell his half of the company mm-hmm. so you know there is a certain amount of that in there something else 
um, Lazenby also said that he wasn't very good with was being um, he just wasn't very diplomatic in interviews. So he often spoke the truth. One of the things he said in an interview was, I'm looking forward to being Bond for the broads and the bread. I wouldn't even care if they didn't put my name on the marquee. And then in another interview later, he said, I've even done things Bond never did, things you couldn't even print. And so reflecting on this later on, Cubby Broccoli said he could have been a success, except he lost his head in the middle of the picture. He couldn't handle it, but he's a nice guy, George. And so after the film was finished, after this nine month shoot, which we'll cover in detail on our Honor Majesty's Secret Service episode, they basically cut him out of the promotion of the film as well. Uh, they wouldn't fly him to America to promote the film. So he paid out of his own pocket to go and do the talk shows in America to promote the film. So obviously something went hugely amiss during the production of the film, but he was still the Bond of record. Yeah, and so after after the shoot had finished in July of that year, July 69, he went home and he went to see his parents. And, and at that time, he, he says he had 18 films to consider because obviously he's he's Bond, he's the incumbent Bond. Of course, he's going to get offers in. And he said, but it's all commercial rubbish, such as the guy getting the girl at the end of Battle of Britain. I'll just have to wait and see. And at this stage, he intended to make the next Bond film, which at that point was going to be The Man with the Golden Gun. But a mere three months, four months later, comes to November and just before the release of the film, he said he doesn't want to play it anymore. Um, And the, the story is... So he says, the producers made me feel like I was mindless. They disregarded everything I suggested simply because I hadn't been in the film business like them for about a thousand years. So Ronan O'Reilly had given him some advice and basically said that Bond is old hat. And as we move into the 70s, it's all going to be a liberal, free world. It's not about war anymore. You know, hippie movies were the future. He said, Bond's over. Let's make love, not war. So he con- he convinced he convinced him to to do that basically. To you know, he, he was down to make. He was offered seven a seven film contract for a mi- turned, million million dollars. Was it? Mil- yeah, a million dollars, and and turned it down because he was convinced that Bond was going to be archaic, you know, moving forward. So he said he convinced me that there was a guy called Clint Eastwood doing westerns in Italy getting half a million dollars for a month. I had to work nine months on the bloody Bond movie and they were going to pay me a million. I said, I'd rather be Clint Eastwood. So he made that decision and he he threw it in. He, he threw the one of the biggest, if not the biggest role in, in movies away, basically, um, because he was convinced it was the right thing to do. Um, and Cubby, Cubby said... I find it incredible that a plum role can't be respected. We ch- we chose George because in his physique and his in his looks and his walk, he was the best of the candidates. He had the masculinity. Looking at the film, to put it in an old Spanish phrase, one could wish he had less cojones and more charm. And so, yeah, he stepped down after just one film. I guess the thing to remember about Lazenby quitting at this point is that... Yeah, we'd hit the peak of, of Bond with Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice. But, you know, there was no... This was only six, seven films in. This wasn't where we are now with 25 films later. So the power of hindsight is is an amazing thing. To us, we can see, yeah, this was an amazing opportunity that he turned down. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you know, it might not have seemed that risky. And I think the problem was is that being Bond had given him an inflated sense of, you know, who he was. You know, they talk about the Bond films being a premium production and he would have been treated like a god, basically. Yeah. So you can almost forgive it, but I don't know. I think to cut yourself off like that so so dramatically, um, it, it just does look crazy with, with hindsight. And it, I think, did they say not to turn up to the premiere because he had a beard? Yeah, he didn't look like Bond, did he? So they weren't happy with that. And that obviously riled him even more so had he quit by that point by the premiere because you said it was like a month before yeah yeah um, he'd quit but before the release yeah so like i'm not surprised they didn't want him to come mm. to the premiere beard or no beard um, Pro- beard but, could have just been an excuse you yeah know? exactly um, exactly it's hard to know what the actual truth is 
Um, anyway, so uh, 1970 uh, and George Lazenby is linked uh, with a role in a Western called Deakin. And it's described as a full on, full of hard riding and shoot 'em up action. Um, but the newspaper report that also reports that states that Lazenby doesn't like guns as he's a bit of a pacifist now. So he's obviously going through a bit of an identity crisis. Mm. Um, but his first real role after Honor Majesty's Secret Service was in a film called Universal Soldier in 1971. And it's not connected to the uh, Dolph Lundgren, Jean-Claude Van Damme franchise, Universal Soldier. It's a real counterculture film. It's really, really amateurish. You can watch it on YouTube. I wouldn't recommend it. It looks <laughs> dreadful. He's got long hair. He's got a moustache. And let's not forget, this is a man who hasn't had any acting training at this point. He's picked up from working with the best people in the game. And so, yeah, that's what you get in Universal Soldier. His next film after that was a film called Who's, Who Saw Her Die? This is an Italian film directed by Aldo Lardo. Uh, again, he's got very long hair, but he's also got lost a lot of weight for this film. Also starring this film is Adolfo Celli, um, who played Largo in Thunderball. So it is, again, it's, well, actually, this doesn't look too bad. It's more of like an Italian giallo type film, and it looks like, very much like Don't Look Now, you know, the um, the Venice film. Yeah. And I think it's actually filmed in Venice as well, and it's about a grieving parents looking for their the, their daughter who's died and that's basically the same plot as um uh, don't look now but he said he took this film because he wanted the money to buy a boat and he his agent had had tried to hook him up with bernando bertolucci who and he was going to make last tango in paris with him but he said that the only part i can offer you would be her husband which is a small role for you but i've got my friend here this aldo lardo who's doing this uh, film in venice would you like to do that and he said yeah sure anything because that would give me enough money to buy a boat. Uh, interestingly, this film uh, it also has a score by Ennio Morricone. But uh, frustratingly for Lazenby, um, after Honor Majesty's Secret Service saw him dubbed for a large part of the film by George Baker, this film also saw Lazenby being dubbed, this time by an American actor called Michael Forrest. But yeah, he did buy that boat, I understand. It's the boat he spent 15 months, the following 15 months, sailing around the world with... Chrissy Townsend, who uh, he had met on Universal Soldier uh, in 1971. So, yeah, it took, took some time out with that boat, sailing the world. She became pregnant with their first child, and this meant that he decided to settle down and try and get his acting career back on, on track. And so in 1973, he, he married her, and they had two kids, Zachary and Melanie. So he's, he's trying to get his career back now. Yes. And part of that, um, this bid to get his career back on track, bearing in mind this is only four years after Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, George Lazenby gave an interview to the Sydney Morning Herald, which uh, was published under the headline, Aussie actor almost killed by role of 007. And in this interview, he confesses to having blown all of his James Bond wages which he said were $52,000 on cars, restaurants, women and vodka. He also said that he'd had two nervous breakdowns and had become an alcoholic. Bearing in mind, this is four years after on a Majesty Secret Service. Not to, uh, obviously not making light of uh, people with uh, alcoholism issues there, but um, it's a lot. He's gone through a lot here. Yeah. He said, during a wild drinking spree in Spain, I passed out and I stopped breathing for 10 minutes, he told the journalist, a uh, wow. journalist called Robert Milliken. My body went rigid. God knows how I survived, but it taught me a lesson. I vowed mm. to give up drinking, stop trying to play James Bond in real life and be myself. So he was, you know, already at this point repentant for his bad behaviour uh, in the wake of being Bond. And he was basically looking to start his acting career. He said he'd been offered a part in a TV play at the BBC called The Operation, in which he played a property tycoon. But yeah, that, that did happen. But in the article, it says he admits that he was a naive young man manipulated by movie moguls and forced to play the artificial, superficial Bond character off screen as well as on. Everyone was shouting advice at me, telling me to sit up, smile, shut up and take the money. I couldn't, ment I couldn't take it mentally or physically. It got me down to nine stone. He says, though, that if he'd stayed on as 007, I would have been locked up by now. He said, you, you lose all perspective of money. I was spending $400 a week on restaurants 
At that time, I wasn't anybody until I'd had a bottle of vodka in my hand. It nearly killed me. I was enclosed in an unreal, insular world. And he, I mean, this is such a revealing interview at this stage. Mm. Um, he said, um, he admits that he'd got, he had too much success too quickly and got pretty big headed. It was red carpets for me everywhere. VIP lounges, red Rolls Royces at the airport and curtains drawn round me in the first class. I was having three cars sent to me, one by my agent, one by the director, and another by the producer. It had, had to blow my mind. When I went to India to meditate, I tried to relax, but there was a volcano erupting inside, erupting inside me, tearing me to pieces. Millions were spent grooming me for a, for the movies like a piece of machinery. But he says he, he at this point he was glad to have left his hard living days behind him. He said, you need mental conditioning to play Bond. I burnt some bridges behind me and it was fun. Really, I'm sort of glad I did it. I know I won't have to do it again. I can look back and laugh because I didn't hurt anyone except myself. So quite an open, revealing interview. Not the sort of thing he says in interviews mm. nowadays. Yeah. Also, that amount of drinking as well. Remember, he's only got half a kidney. That's it's. Mm. It is amazing that he, he didn't die. Really? Yeah. I mean, he's, what, 80 now? Yeah. He's the last man standing from the original Bonds. Mm. Yeah, incredible. So sp spurred on by this, he it's 1973 and he he says himself that he was absolutely flat broke. And so he, he went to Hong Kong to meet Bruce Lee and his producer Raymond Chow. And they ended up offering him $10,000 to appear in a film with Bruce Lee, which was, it was going to be the, the Golden Harvest film called Game of Death. Um, but this collapsed after Bruce Lee's sudden death. And George Lainsman was actually meant to meet Bruce Lee for lunch on the day that Bruce Lee died. Wow. Um, so he'd been signed to this multiple movie deal during Game of Death and it was, was going to star in that film. And the film's original tagline was actually, it's Lee, it's Lazenby, it's Bruce versus Bond. But obviously that didn't happen. And it was announced that he would make instead... The Golden Needles of Ecstasy for the same company, Golden Harvest. In the end, he didn't actually end up making that one, but he shot three other films, one called Stoner in 1974, but is also known as The Shrine of Ultimate Bliss. You've got The Man from Hong Kong in 1975 and A Queen's Ransom in 1976. What he did say about his time, he said, I was the only person on the set who really spoke English. I mean, I had an interpreter, but the director didn't and my co-star didn't. It got a bit lonely. So it's a shame because his experience on movie sets doesn't seem to be that great. He seems to be isolating himself quite a bit, doesn't he? Yeah, that's definitely a recurring theme, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Do you watch any Kung Fu movies? Are you familiar with that sort of... No, not at all. No, are you? No, me neither. No, no. not at all. But apparently but yeah, they, you... they, they saw him, his fighting in On a Majesty's Secret Service. And Raymond Chow says he saw him and he, he could see that he could handle himself and he had a good movement. And that's one of the reasons why they got him involved. Yeah, I mean, he is good in on a Majesty. He does the physical mm. stuff really convincingly. Yeah. There's that fight, I remember, on the beach right at the start where they're fighting in the in the waves. Some of it's a bit sped up, but um, yeah, it's good. And then he's obviously got that fight with the with the henchmen in the in the hotel. Where I the love that fight. Smashed up. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. I think it's one of the best hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat fights in, in Bond films, actually. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, interested to see those, I think. Um, mm. See how he is in those. So let's just quickly look at the rest of the roles uh, from in the 1970s. He was fairly busy in the 1970s, actually. He returned to Australia um, and was in an episode of a TV uh, police drama called Matlock Police. And he starred an episode called In the Name of the Queen. And this was inspired by the Great Train Robbery. And in this, he's got a moustache. He's riding a motorbike. He looks every bit, you know, the action hero. There was another film, a TV movie that he made in Australia called Is en Is There Anybody There? That was in 1976. And that was with a guy called Robert Bruning, who he would work with many times, actually, in Australia. He moved then to Hollywood and started getting acting lessons. And he said he got acting lessons for 20 years then. He talked quite fondly about his acting lessons uh, in Hollywood. And while he was there, he started to get roles. Um, his career started to pick up a little bit. He, um, he did uh, a show called The Quest, which was a Western TV series starring Kurt Russell. That was in 1976. In 1977, he starred in a... 
uh, a Charlie's Angels ripoff called Cover Girls that also starred Don Johnson. And then talking in 1978, this is another interview. Uh, basically, Cubby Broccoli was asked about Lazenby in an interview in 1978. And he said, casting Lazenby was my biggest mistake in 16 years. He just couldn't deal with success. He was so arrogant. There was the stature and the looks of Bond, but Lazy Lazenby couldn't get along with the other performers and technicians. And in that interview, they obviously went to Lazenby to get a response. But actually, Sean Connery came to his defence. He said, I've known George for many years and arrogance is not in his character. Alas, I cannot say in the same for Cubby Broccoli. So no love, less, love lost there between Sean Connery and Cubby Broccoli at that stage. But... Someone who did come to Lazenby's rescue was Harry Saltzman. He signed George Lazenby up to appear in a science fiction film called The Micronauts, which was also going to star Michael Caine. Uh, Lazenby said, when I tossed Bond in after one movie, he said he'd make sure I never got another job. Now he's offering me one. It seems that the 10 year sentence is up. Harry saw me in a TV show I'd recently made for NBC. He rang me up out of the blue and said, now that was a damn lousy show, but I thought you were great. Unfortunately, the Micronauts with Michael Caine never got made. So that's a, an unmade opportunity there. But that would have been interesting. Mm. Um, and again, reflecting on his time as Bond, Lazenby said, I thought I was as important as any shake. Whatever I wanted, I got. Looking back, the one thing I missed out on was reality. Being James Bond was like being a cola bottle. People came along, drank you dry. James Bond was so big that I myself didn't really exist. So he's, you know, he's facing up to the reality of what he's done, I think, here. Mm. In 1978, apparently he took an advertisement out in Variety, the trade paper, offering himself up for acting work. Um, And in 1977, he appeared in the John Landis sketch comedy Kentucky Fried Movie in in a sketch called That's Armageddon, which also features Donald Sutherland. And that's a straight comedy sketch. He's, uh, I think he's like uh, trying to talk to a woman while a house is burning down behind him 1978 he starred in a film called death dimension alongside harold Sakata. and the trailer for that's quite funny the trailer calls him george 007 lazenby and harold odd job Sakata. that's a b-list uh you know martial arts movie that one he starred in a few other things one called an evening in byzantium which was a two-part series about the Cannes film festival being taken over by terrorists uh, in 1978, he appeared in something called The Newman Shame. That's again with Robert Bruning. And that sounds a lot like a Get Carter type um, film. And he starred in a, an episode of Hawaii Five O with Jack Lord. Um, mm. Obviously, he was once uh, Felix Leiter with Sean Connery. And then 1979, which is probably his biggest role since Bond, he was in a crime drama called St. Jack, which was directed by Peter Bogdanovich. And that film also stars Denim Elliott and it was shot in Singapore. It's actually in, it was actually banned in Singapore and Malaysia for nudity and coarse language. It does look very uh, close to the bone, that one. And then finally, this is probably my favourite acting credit for him. He starred in two episodes of a show called BJ and the Bear. Have you heard of this programme? No, I haven't. So it was made at the height of the CB radio fad, and it's about a truck driver and his pet chimpanzee. Oh, wow. <laughs> Called Bear. Um, yeah. So you remember that, what's that? Clint Eastwood one, Every Which Way But Every Which Way You Can, or Any Which Way Every Which Way But Loose. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that sort of vein. So who, do, who does Lazenby play? Well, he does two episodes, one in the first series, and he plays a burglar. Right. And in another yep. episode, he plays someone called Paul Desmond. Um, but... Um, I haven't seen either of those, but that takes us up to the 1980s. 1980s, yeah. There's a couple of uh, interesting roles uh, specifically in the 80s. The first one comes in 1983, where they made a straight-to-TV film of The Man from Uncle, and it's called The Return from Return of the Man from Uncle: The 15 Years Later Affair. It's a long title, isn't it? <laughs> so basically, uh, a, a Another a follow-up to the 1960s TV series um, starring Robert Vaughan. And uh, he, George Lazenby, appears as JB. And he's driving Ooh. an Aston Martin. So I wonder yes. who that's meant to be. Jason, Jason Bourne. Bourne. Jack Bauer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they they even get the uh, a mention of the, the title of the film on the Majesty's Secret Service in there as well. So interesting, it was in 1983, because what else happened in 1983 in the world of Bond? Well, Octopussy was released with Roger Moore, and Never Say Never Again with Sean Connery. So 
essentially there were three Bonds in 1983. <laughs> um, well, loosely. Uh, never Say Never Again, ring the klaxon again, because Kevin McClory actually considered George Lazenby before Connery you know, chose to do it. Um, wow. So, yeah, this, this uh, appearance, uh, he's basically helps out uh, Napoleon Solo in this because um, he sort of need, is, he notices he needs help and so he helps in the, in the pursuit. It, it's a clip on YouTube. You can you can watch it. At this point, he still looks the part. You know, he, let's not forget, he still could be and if the seven film, you know, the contract, he probably would be still playing it at this point. If yeah, that's carried true. On. And so other, just in between that, so also in 1982, so there's a, a soap in America called General Hospital. Yeah. Which I'd never heard of. It's the longest running soap. Um, and he he played in five episodes in 1982 there as a character called Reg, Reginald Durban. And then other, other TV appearances in stuff that I've never heard of, like rituals. He did nine episodes of that. Um, so right. at, at this point, you think he's just taking anything, really. That's what it looks yeah. like. Um, up until 1989, it gets interesting again where he stars in Alfred Hitchcock Presents uh, in season four. it's called, The episode is called Diamonds Aren't Forever. Oh. So 1989, we have a gr- slightly greying George Lazenby this time. He comes down. It begins with Lazenby landing from a parachute in a white tuxedo. It's a Union Jack parachute. And again, I think the whole episode is available on YouTube. If not, there are clips of it. Um, but he is just basically, he's at, a, at one of the hotel guests and it's got loads of Bond references in as well. Uh, he checks himself in, in the traditional Bond, James Bond, but that gets drowned out in it because obviously legally they probably can't say <laughs> that. A couple of uh, Connery quips are in there, shocking, and he got the point. Again, worth having a look at. But interesting that for somebody who gave Bond up so quickly, he's still making homage to the character, let's say, and the and the fact that he played it. Yeah, he, I wonder what point did he realise <laughs> what Rowan and O'Reilly had said to him mm. was not the case. Yeah. Um, because what we're talking about, 1960 to 1970, basically, to 98, it was about 12 years that he took to, to do Bond again, basically. Yeah. So it was obviously during the, the sort of the 1970s, early 80s, where he realised what, I mean, he obviously realised quite early on, but like at that point he was ready to start like capitalising on that, the fact that he was mm. once James Bond. Um, well, let's not forget how huge Moonraker was. Yes, oh, very, yeah, very much so, yeah. And that was 1979, wasn't it? So, you know, by that point you'd be realising, you know, it'd still be me in the contract, this would be still be my tenure. God, yeah, of course, yeah. And The Spy Who Loved Me had obviously been a massive hit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, God, yeah. It's quite tragic when you think about it, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, sadly, in the 1980s, Lazenby, George Lazenby, was dealt with a bit of a devastating blow. He had, as we mentioned, two children at this point, Zachary and Melanie, and his son Zachary was diagnosed with a brain tumour in 1985. So that was all in the midst of all this. And just... Nine years later, in 1994, his son Zachary tra- tragically died. And then not long af- long after that, he yeah divorced Christina, his first wife. So, um, yeah, quite a sad time uh, in Lazenby's life then. Um, you know, would have a massive impact on him, I'm sure. So we get to 1990, and throughout the 90s, he's still... Still doing doing some roles. An interesting one I found was a, a video game in 1996 called Fox Hunt, right? But it's like it's like real life. It's like it's a, like a movie, an interactive movie, I guess, but a really early sort of crude version of one, right? Um, where he he plays a role in that. Um, you can watch somebody on YouTube playing through the whole game, and it came out on PlayStation One. But then that got sort of clipped together and made into a a movie in its own right, so you could just watch it, but, right? Um, that's interesting. You know, he's it's got Bond nods again. Not him this time, but you know, the the main protagonist in that. So he was in the TV series Superboy. I'm guessing you've watched this. No, no. you've not watched Superboy. No, no. So he 
uh, he made a guest appearance as an alien disguised as Jor-El. Superman's that's dad. Superman's dad, who Marlon Brando played, didn't he? That's in right, the, in, in the, the Superman in the, movie. In the movie, the yeah. Two, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he, he made a guest appearance in that in 1990, in the second season of Superboy. So dig that out. He really looks the part, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, he also appeared in some Emmanuel films. Do you remember Emmanuel? It's uh, yeah. the, the late, soft, soft, erotic sort of, yeah, late night Channel Five. So he starred. Well, he didn't star in them. He appeared in them with Sylvia Cristel in uh, seven of them: Emmanuel's Forever, Emmanuel's Revenge, Emmanuel in Venice, Emmanuel's Love, Emmanuel's Magic, Emmanuel's Perfume, and Emmanuel's Secret. So they were all straight to TV, just in case you were wondering. And they all came out in the same year. So wow. prolific. In that year. Um, in 1993, he had a part in the film Gettysburg. Have you seen this? I don't have seen no. it. No. As General uh, Johnston Pettigrew. He was also in Team Knight Rider. It was an episode of that. He was in an episode of Baywatch as Commander McCabe. He did a voice in Batman Beyond. Have you seen Batman Beyond? It's from 1999. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So he, he voiced Mr. Walker slash King. Right. He also did some, some films... None of note, really, though, sadly. So, yeah, but still sort of keeping going, you know, keeping acting throughout the 90s. Yeah, sounds like, uh, yeah, he's not quite hitting the same heights as he was, but um, he's got his family life to to think about as well at Mm -hmm. this point. And talking of his family life, uh, in 2002, he married for a second time to uh, the tennis star Pam Shriver, Pam Shriver uh, is grand in the Grand Slam tournament. She won twenty two titles, mainly in doubles, um, and then one in mixed doubles. Um, and she actually won a gold medal at the Olympic Games in Seoul in nineteen eighty eight. Pam Shriver, um, just as a footnote, is part of the Kennedy Kennedy dynasty. She's the fourth cousin of Maria Shriver, who was once married to Arnold Schwarzenegger. So mm. there you go, a little link there to Arnie <laughs> um, <laughs> they had children together as well so uh, uh, their first child was born in 2004 so George Jr so I mean this is not long ago he must have been quite an old dad at this point 60s 70s hmm. and then to twins Kate and Sam on in 2005 so three young children very close together and they lived in Brentwood in California together but in August 2008, uh, Pam Shriver filed for a divorce from George Lazenby after six years together and their divorce was finalised in May 2011. Now, at this point, it's worth mentioning that they had a very, very acrimonious divorce and there are a lot of awful stories that came out around this time around what had gone on and what have you. I'm not going to mention any of that here, but you can find all of it out online. Uh, but let's just say there was a lot of things said and it got very, very, very murky. And so moving on to recent acting roles. Um, and now I have actually seen this uh, in 2012. He did a guest, he made a guest appearance. It's on a, a sketch show in Canada called This Hour Has 22 Minutes. Have you, have you seen, have you seen that sketch show first off? It sounds that, familiar. Yeah, it did to me as well, but I don't think I have. But I've definitely seen the sketch, which is called "Help! I've sky fallen and I can't get up." Right. <laughs> so it's a spoof. It's a spoof of the whole, the whole series of of Bond. Basically, it's a couple of minutes. Have a look. See what you think. You know, it's Lazenby. At what? How old would he have been there? Uh, seventy-two. But very, pl- very much playing on the fact that he is seventy-two. Um, it's got some nice nods to it. It's you know. Have a look, see what you think. But so it's uh, James Bond as an old man, basically. Yep, yep. Very good. In 2014, he played uh, Jim Jeffrey's dad in se- season two of a sitcom called Legit, which I've not seen. No. And very recently, he starred as a character called Doctor Jason Love in an audio version of a spy novel called Passport to Oblivion, and. It's about a retired MI6 agent who is sort of getting back in the field after another agent is killed, which is very much what we want with the Pierce Brosnan sort of. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's what we want. Uh, with Terence Stamp starring alongside him as as uh, the M character, I guess I guess you would say. So yeah, st- I mean, very up to very recently, still basically playing Bond characters, and and even even 
back to a few months ago where he did a, a TiVo promotion video and uh, referencing the, that he was a super spy. So, yeah, he's still still going at it. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about the other Bond actors. Not many of them spoofed being Bond afterwards, no. did they? I'm sure Roger no. Moore probably did. Depends if you count Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Roger Moore did Cannonball Run, didn't he? Where he basically played a James Bond-type character. Yeah. Um, As Brosnan. Brosnan must have. He's done a lot. I don't... I don't recall him spoofing Bond. I know he obviously did Matador, which was in that sort of field. Yeah, but it, it was the retired sort of yeah nod yeah. to it, wasn't it? But not not as uh, full on. And Dalton, Dalton did it. D- Dalton's never really spoofed Bond. The closest no. he got, he did Alias, didn't he? Oh, did he? Yeah, but and I'm just thinking about Connery. Obviously, Connery did The Rock, didn't he? Playing a, a secret, a super spy, basically, who got arrested. Um, but never yeah. like so overtly Bond ripoffs. No. Um, I mean, I think w- one thing you always read about Lazenby is that at this point he's become a property developer or a property mogul of some sort and made and become very wealthy out of that. But I don't know like how much of that is true. I know one of his daughters is 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 in property um, in real estate. But yeah, I don't think acting is his only source of income. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so we, I've mentioned it already once, but this in 2017, George Lazenby appear, uh, participated in a documentary called Becoming Bond, which is written and directed by Josh Greenbaum. Have you seen this? I don't think I have, you know, not this one. It's very interesting in that it tells George Lazenby, it's George Lazenby telling his own story in a uh, to camera interview. I think it's like filmed over like four different interviews. He tells the camera to, he tells the story to camera of his life and it's kind of like the George Lazenby version of the story. So it's quite one-sided hmm. um, and a lot of it is dramatised. So there's bits where he's telling a story and then it'll cut to a bit where it's, there's an actor playing George Lazenby and Jeff Garlin is in it. He plays Cubby Broccoli or Harry Saltzman. I can't remember. And there's another really famous actor in it as well. I can't think who it is. Um, but anyway, it's an interesting watch. It does take about an hour to get to James Bond though. So it does spend a lot of time talking about his life in Australia before we get to, to, right. to Bond. Um, the director uh, said that that was uh, a conscious decision. Actually, he he thought that Lazenby was an interesting enough character for it not just to focus on Bond. But um, so just just to wrap things up, then just he taught, in an interview, Josh Greenbaum was asked about Lazenby's regrets, and he says there is some regret that he does express, and it's for two reasons: financially, he wished he had that money, and he wished he did so he did another, so people didn't mistakenly think that he got fired. One thing you have to remember is that he was a person who never wanted to be an actor as a kid. So for someone like that, it's not crazy. It's not crazy hard to walk away. And then there's another another quote says he told me this story and I don't don't have it on the film. But he said that he went to a psychic who told him that he'd if he had stayed in the role, he would have been in Beverly Hills mansions. But he also would have had three divorces and become an alcoholic. He genuine, genuinely believed that he that would have been true because that was the only path he could see himself headed down had he stayed on at Bond. He got to the mountaintop and saw that everything wasn't so great from up there. So there you have it. It's worth it's worth checking out. Um, I think it's interesting. Actually, when I watch it, I think actually Lazenby's story would make a great movie. Mm. You know, like how they're turning the God, the making of the Godfather into a film. Or into yeah. a TV series, mm-hmm. and how like that's now becoming the way to exploit an IP. Yeah, I think you know if there were to be a James Bond spin-off, it doesn't necessarily have to be you know a character. It could be you know the the story behind a, a crucial moment in the franchise. Mm. Yeah, and that to me, you know, actually, you know, the the first one would be the making of Doctor No and how that story came to be. Yeah. But after that, you know, the story of Lazenby becoming James Bond for Honor Majesty's Secret Service and everything that went went down yeah. with all the archive information that Eon has, I think it would make a fascinating miniseries on Amazon or, you know, or a movie or whatever. Yeah, um, I think they really could go down that. And you've got other pivotal moments as well with Brosnan, you know, not being released from Remington Steel. Yeah. Um, and then the Dalton's third movie. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot in there. Let's make it a fourth 
a six series um like the crown style drama yes <laughs> with the different actors playing them in different generations i think yeah. it could make an interesting series yeah yeah and maybe it was just biased <laughs> um but yeah so i mean that that basically wraps up lazenby i mean like there's like i said there's plenty of interviews out there with george lazenby that you can listen to um and he tells his story very eloquently but um what do you think about like now like what what's your feeling on why why he quit the role oh, it's really it's re- it is really difficult isn't it because we can only we can only go on what he says really but it does slightly differ sometimes depending on i guess how he's feeling maybe he did just annoy a few too many people on that on the shoot of on a majesty's secret service and there were yeah. enough people not willing to work with him moving forward you know which so you think it was a case of him saying that I you can't fire me because I quit. Yeah. Yeah. Just to maintain that pride, you know. Yeah, because the story is that you know he had a million dollars on the table and he and he walked away from it, which is, yeah. you know, leaves him with some sort of like I guess some it, it saves face, doesn't it, I guess. Yeah. But I mean that's purely speculation. What he says could be completely what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And if absolutely. he was and if he was advised that it was the wrong thing to do, then, you know, he's owned up to that. He's taken that and he says he has no regrets. But I mean, I'm sure he must have like he wouldn't have returned to the role of that those few times if he hadn't thought that there was something in it. Yeah, that's where I've got uh, an issue with when he says he, he has no regrets. And I know having regrets is pointless because no one's got a time machine. You can't change anything. You've got to accept that. However, you can't look back and see what how you know what has happened to the bond franchise and not have a regret unfortunately it's such a it's such a big missed opportunity i think yeah in an interview i listened to the other day he said that he hadn't watched any of the bond films since he w- he'd been in one but i know that he's seen no time to die because there was a picture of him coming out of that but he does seem to be want to be he does seem to be you know keen to capitalize on his connection to the bond mm. films i know he went to was it the die another day premiere that was the first time he'd really been back in the Bond fold. Yeah, and I know that he uh, was in a. He had like communications with Roger Moore. Obviously, he's talked about meeting Sean Connery. Yeah, I don't know if he's ever crossed paths with. Uh, I think he has met Brosnan. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I guess it's easy for him now. Now that, like you say, everyone looks more favourable upon on the Majesty's Secret Service. It is. It's far easier for him to come out and be more pro Bond now, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, mm. definitely. And all that stuff is now ancient history, right? If he did fall out, if he did annoy people, it's all ancient history. Most yeah. of the people that worked on on a Majesty's Secret Service are no longer with us. Yeah. So all that is is in the past, and him being at the the Dine of the Day premiere is, you know, proves that there is water under the bridge. Mm-hmm. What I would really like to see for the 60th anniversary, and I know a lot of people say this, but is Lazenby in a room with Brosnan, with Craig, with Dalton, you know, just having a chat. Just imagine mm-hmm. had the four of them having an uh, an open honest chat about being Bond yeah. in a roundtable scenario. Yeah. I mean, it's something only six people have ever done, you know. Yeah, more people have walked on the moon. Yeah, um, and so and and that's never happened, has it? A, a sort of a, a conversation like that with the with the Bond actors, just like an no. open forum, is it? And not that I can know. I don't think so. I'd love that to happen. But I mean, mm. you know, his his film on a Majesty Secret Service is one of the best Bond films ever made and the craftsmanship is incredible in that film. But also, I think he's he's pretty good in it. I know some people say, you know, oh, he's a bit wooden, he's not very natural, but I don't see it that I don't see it that much. It's it's not so bad that it's jarring. No. Uh it's it's completely watchable. Yeah. Um yeah. Also, I do have to say that probably a lot of the heavy lifting is being done by George Baker. Yes. Because remember, the whole time he's Hilary Bray, it's not him essentially voice acting. Well, Peter Hunt, interestingly, said that they filmed the stuff with George Lazenby as Bond, as Hilary Bray first. So that because he's playing a character in the film, it became like less of a challenge because it, he could be a bit wooden and a bit right yeah you know a bit forced because he was playing a character yeah and they saved the stuff as george lazenby as bond till later in the film so that when he actually was james bond he was much more confident on set and he was able to to pull it off but um 
he he really does look the part and I, there are you know there is a part of me that thinks you know it would have been great to see him do more but we may never have got Roger Moore if we hadn't had you know that we yeah. may not have had diamonds are forever on the on the other side but um <laughs> it is what it is isn't it you know how he tells the story about having his hair cut like yeah. Sean Connery does he mean Sean Connery is James Bond? Because Sean Connery yeah. was balding by this point. <laughs> yeah, unless he's just given a, a, a total buzz cut all over. There you go. <laughs> um, I, we can only assume it's the Connery. Uh, Connery is yeah, Bond. We, we can only assume. Yeah. And there was another thing as well, just just from listening to the interviews with it. Like, no one really has a lot to say about Lazenby in a bad. Well, I, I mean, I guess it's the sanitized version on the on the DVD. Mm. But everyone's very sort of effusive with their praise about him. Even Peter Hunt, Lois Maxwell, they all say nice things about Lazenby. Yeah. Which makes it all the more difficult to understand what really went went on. Yeah. It's just one of those, isn't it? That that the more people we lose as well as as the years go by, those stories ebb away. Yeah. We'll never know the truth. We'll never know. Mm. Well... That was excellent. Thank you uh, for for joining us as we talked about George Lazenby. If you have anything to add about um, the man and his career, please email us on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. And if people want to message us on uh, social media. At jamesbondatoz on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Now that we've covered George Lazenby on his own episode, he joins the pantheon of episodes that we've done on Pierce Brosnan, Sean Connery, Daniel Craig and Timothy Dalton which just leaves Sir Roger Moore as our last James Bond actor to cover. And that's going to be sooner than we uh, sooner than we think, I, I reckon. Yeah, it's just around um, the corner. Yeah, I cannot wait for that one. Um, but before that, we will have an episode on Licence to Kill, which I am very much looking forward to doing. Yeah, So definitely. I hope you'll join us for that one. But until then, it just remains for me to say that James Bond AZ podcast will return next week. Ciao. And thank you from Mr. Wheatley, who didn't join us. <laughs> Goodbye, (laughs) y'all. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. This never happened to the other fella. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.